the Sancheros Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Christopher Cote. And today we're talking about Akira Kurosawa's 1945-1952 film, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, otherwise known as They Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, otherwise known as Treading on the Tiger's Tail. There's a bunch of different alternative titles for this one. His shortest film. Yes. <laughs> the movie is... <laughs> Barely an hour long? 59 minutes, I believe, is the actual runtime. So you could watch Seven Samurai or watch this three and a half times. And uh, I wonder which one you have a better time with. <laughs> this is an interesting movie. It's certainly something I didn't expect. I thought that this film was about theater for some reason. I think it is about theater. I don't know why you're saying it's not. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah. The film is based on the premise for two different famous Japanese plays, the no drama Ataka and the Kabuki Kanjicho. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Kanjicho is one of the most popular kabuki plays in Japan. According to Wiki, if you ask a Japanese kabuki actor to practice for Kanjicho, it's considered an insult because they should just all know it. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Okay. That's pretty so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So it's like an extremely famous dramaturgical source. So why do you say it's not about theater? Because I certainly got that impression based on a lot in the movie. Going into it, I thought that it was about a group of performers. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think that was just based entirely off of the poster that's on screen. I was just like, oh, that looks like a costume. Turns out it is a costume, but it's not at all a costume for what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can see what you mean there. This is just my ignorant opinion, like the rest of the podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we're here for. <laughs> when I say it's about theater, I mean in a meta sense. It is not textually about theater. It is subtextually about theater. It is, yes, yeah. It is just about, actually, uh, I'll read you the plot summary itself. Set in 1185, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail follows military commander Yoshitune Minamoto and six samurai, led by Benkei. They sneak across the countryside disguised as monks to reach Yoshitune's last remaining ally for protection. With Yoshitune disguised as a porter, the party must plead their case to Magistrate Tagashi. Tagashi's right-hand man catches a glimpse of Yoshitune's face, and to defuse the situation, Benkei beats his own commander under the guise of him being too slow. Convinced that no retainer would ever beat his master, Takashi allows them to pass, sending them sake as a gift. Yep, that's the whole thing. <laughs> short, short plot, short plot summary. It's essentially one long scene with an epilogue and a, <laughs> and a prologue. Not even a prologue, <laughs> just text. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, there's the they're walking in the woods before they get to the magistrate. But even that's just, hey, we're walking in the woods and we're going to the magistrate. We're not going to fight him. That is the only thing that happens. And then there's a 50 minute scene. I guess not exactly 50 minutes. It's basically 50 minutes. <laughs> the bulk of the film is just pleading their case. Magistrate Tagashi, played by the actor who plays Shinshiro Sugata. Yeah, our favorite himbo. Still staying in the same role. Yeah, no, he is once again in this film just a happy-go-lucky guy. Very hot, just smiling every time the camera turns to him. It was nice to see him again. Shows up in a beautiful telephoto shot. I was wondering when he would show up, and he showed up like an angel. Yeah, no, I, I actually laughed out loud when I saw Me him. Too. I was like, oh, there's our boy. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew the actor's name, but it was it was good to see him again. It's exciting, because I know he's going to show up in a lot of other ones, but they're actually spread throughout his filmography a lot, so it's going to be weeks and weeks of not seeing him, and then he's suddenly just going to show up. Yeah, there he is, just happy as ever. He was good in this movie, I, I thought. He played the role of just a, a happy magistrate pretty well, who he seemed genuinely convinced by the monks, and I was like, there he is, he's doing a good job, I, I love to see him. Yeah, I believe he was fooled. Yeah, no, I definitely believe he was fooled. Actually, when I first saw him, I was like, I just can't see him as anything other than Sanchiro Sugata in a costume. <laughs> I was trying to think, in-universe, could this be Sanchiro Sugata? But actually, by setting this in 1185, this is by far the furthest back Kurosawa ever goes. His samurai films tend to be, like, 1400s, 1500s. 
Mm-hmm. When I saw that opening title going back all the way to the 12th century, I was like, whoa, like, I, I didn't know he ever did this far back. And again, I thought I was going into a theater drama set in the modern day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was super shocked to see that it was actually a period piece, knowing as well that this was made, you know, at the end of the war and Japan actually surrendered during production. Ooh. They just needed Kurosawa to make something because they had no... You know, like, the whole economy is doing terribly. He wrote this movie in one night. Yeah, you can tell. Yep. <laughs> so, honestly, it was some of the stronger writing that we've seen so far in the course of this podcast. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a, a great scene. It felt, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not maybe a good movie. What's in there is good, even if there's not much of it. It was my experience with the film. I was kind of excited to see Kurosawa at such a low runtime and see him work at maximum efficiency, but I found myself actually wishing that the movie was a lot longer because I was interested in what was going on. But boy, in the beginning, they tell you a lot of exposition in that text and I could not figure out anything. Yeah, I didn't quite know what was going on, but I also had the experience of being like, wait, I kind of like these characters. I want this idea to develop more than just one scene where they talk to the magistrate. (laughs) I wanted to find out if they made it safely where they were going. Yeah, I didn't fully understand where they were going. At one point I was like, oh yeah, they're getting donations for the temple, but they're not. Even I was convinced. <laughs> it really does feel like the middle of a movie, but it's not like Sanchiro Sugata where stuff is missing. It's like stuff was just never made. As a film, it's half a film. And the censors prevented them from even releasing it until 1952, a whole seven years later, because the film portrayed traditional Japanese values. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so was there a period of westernization following World War II that would have conflicted with this film? Yeah, this is under American occupation. There were actually Americans coming to the set, taking pictures of them slashing the Americans with samurai swords, which, Ah. yeah. (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) Not great. But anyway, you know, he made... A film, a film that, I mean, I actually, I think we had different takes on this. I enjoyed a lot. <laughs> By the end of that, I was like, wow, that was fun. That was really weird. They had a salacious bee crumb level buffoon following <laughs> them around the entire time. Head Commander was cool. There was a lot of dramatic irony and intrigue and tension. The entire time I thought like they were going to fight. I was like, oh, this is his first big samurai fight film. And then it didn't happen. <laughs> nope. To me, it really felt like a television episode, not a movie. I agree with that. I felt like there was a lot missing from it that would have made it a lot stronger. Yeah. Again, if we could have seen what they talked about in the beginning, I would have gotten a much better sense of what was going on. Thrusting someone in to the middle of the action in a movie tends to work well, usually. You got to establish who people are, and I don't know who most of the people in this movie are. That's something, yeah, there's six mysterious samurai who all seem to have backstories and personalities. But we don't know what they are. (laughs) I don't think that you even see all of their faces. I truthfully was really confused because it's like, which of these is Yoshitune? I don't know. It took me a while to figure that out. In the beginning, when the, uh, like I said, Salacious B. Crumb, just comic porter, is uh, doing a dramatic irony by saying, imagine if you guys were Yoshitune and his soldiers, that'd be so nutty, right? Yeah, I did love that. One point, he goes to one of them, which is we learn later is Yoshitune, and he's like, and that one looks like a girl. And I thought it just was going to be a woman, but it was not. That was the Lord Yoshitune himself. Yeah, we should touch on this comedic porter for a sec. He's played by comedian Kenichi Enemoto, and this is the big change from the basis of those other Japanese plays, is there is no comedic porter. Ah. Boy, does he stand out from everything else that's going on in this. He and Benkei are the only characters in the movie, first of all. Yeah. That and the, like, queer-coded villain. (laughs) I thought Kenichi Enemoto was great, and it was actually his performance that made me think, this feels more like a meta-commentary on theater than it does a film. 
Uh, you're saying that that was considered an offense to Kabuki? The Japanese censors really did not like this edition. It felt kind of disrespectful to them, and people tend to consider comedians as a lower tier of actor. Oh, okay. The basis of this story is for a much higher tier performer, and so they see it as a bit of an affront to Kabuki. Yeah, it's like this historical drama, and then there's just this absolute buffoon. That makes sense. I was I was curious. You know, I'm happy that we're not really reviewing a lot of comedy all his films have comedic stuff, usually, but comedy is by far the most subjective when it comes to any of this stuff. And personally, I found the porter really annoying. I thought I was going to. And then he won me over by being so over the top and such a caricature that I was like, oh, look at this guy. What's he doing? <laughs> so it was very weird for like a Kurosawa film, at least for the ones we've seen so far. He was just like a character unlike any other. And he was, I think, the first example I felt of just really insane act, like overacting, but not in a bad way. He's like the Jar Jar Binks. Yes. <laughs> Maybe this was George Lucas's inspiration. Yeah, I was. I, I think I actually <laughs> might have had that thought at one point during the movie. I was like, I, I see how Lucas could be inspired by Kurosawa. It's the same thing. These stoic warriors going through stilted dialogue, just like Phantom Menace. And then suddenly there's this guy just like, whoa. Whoa. I'm just, yeah, just, his facial expressions were insane. And like Jar Jar, he does have some funny moments, but I found that it was a little too much of him. But yeah, I did really love when he was like, there's no way you guys could possibly be the people that if I was caught with, I would be executed on the spot for. That'd be insane, right? And then he finds out and he just like freaks out and he like can't move. They pick him up and he's trying to move the crate over and he's like shaking. <laughs> I was like, this is such a weird character. Like, I've never seen something like this in a movie this old. Yeah, it was super bizarre. And... I really liked Ben K, and I really wanted to see more of the other samurai that were in this. Especially, I noticed one of them is played by Takashi Shimura showing up again in Kurosawa, and he is barely in it. Yes. He might always be in it, but he's in the background. He's not one of the main characters. I would expect you're casting really one of Japan's leading men, or I guess soon-to-be leading men, mm. and he's hardly in this movie. You totally forget that he's even there. When I saw Takashi Shimura, I was like, oh, he must be the lead, right? And then he just kept not saying anything and being in the background of every scene. I was like, oh, he doesn't matter at all in this movie. That's such a shame. Yeah, I think he had three lines. Yeah, and he was good. He looks good. He is doing a good job in the story. And then he just really falls off immediately. And then Benke is the only one who matters. And he was a cool character. I think he was good as the stoic but wise leader of the monk slash actually samurai. I thought Benke was really cool. And I really love his breaking of traditional values in order to do what you have to to survive by beating Yoshitune at the end that was a really good moment of irony i kind of spent the whole time waiting for them to get out because i thought that there was going to be a lot more to the film i was kind of pretty aware of how much was left in the movie so i was surprised that they had even gotten out with 15 minutes left i was like oh is anything's gonna happen after this and the answer is uh yeah something happens but it's insane i, I did like benke a lot like when he hit his master i was like oh wow he he was a very bold character in a way that was kind of unexpected the movie went places i didn't think it would go also i liked when he read the scroll that had nothing on it and just made something up that that was excellently done yeah that was funny it he read it for, like, four minutes or something. Well, it seemed like he was trying to lull um, Senshiro Sugata. <laughs> he was trying to lull the Magistrate Tagashi to sleep, and it worked. He should have read him the dojo rules, and then <laughs> he would have gone wild. He would have really started acting up. <laughs> I really actually enjoyed that scene where they were trying to get out. I thought it was very well-constructed drama, to the point where I was like, this feels very Shakespearean in a way that's weird and unusual for a Kurosawa film. Especially because they don't fight really at all. They just kind of run them back and that's it. I did think that there was going to be a fight. I, I, I'm with you. I was surprised to not have this thing burst into action. Yeah, there was like so much tension waiting for a fight. And I was surprised they didn't give it to us, but I didn't hate that because, I don't know, it seemed well enough done that I thought they pulled it off. But the thing is, when they got away, I was like, oh, now we're going to get it. Yeah. Now they're going to be chased because the magistrate has that his right hand guy who is very suspicious 
suspicious of them. Yeah, queer-coded villain, I, which I feel bad about, but he looks wild. He's very obviously, like, conniving and just a mean, <laughs> evil person. <laughs> Kurosawa keeps the streak of very obvious villains based on their character design. And at the very end, when you see the people come up to them, you're like, oh, this is going to be the fight. And then instead... Instead, it's just a bunch of sake. Yeah, instead, uh, Benkei gets super drunk to no consequences, which was also surprising. Oh, and the porter also gets drunk, and then they kind of dance around and sing for a bit. And the movie's over. It ends, and I was like, oh, what? Huh? Like, yeah. the, the end title? Oh. And I guess something happened. Uh, honestly, I, I think, like, 20 minutes of this 60-minute movie is someone singing. Yeah, and I think that brings up a good point. Music was used in this movie totally differently than in any other film of his to date from where we've seen. Where there was a lot of music all the time. It underscored scenes, it heightened emotions, it non-diegetically explained what was going on in certain scenes. Where there was just a solo man singing about what was going on, which also, I don't know exactly why, but felt Shakespearean to me. That was, it was very weird. Mm, it's a little Greek chorus you know okay yeah that, that makes sense i was like what's with this sudden explosion of the use of music in this movie which i think is another reason why i liked it because it feels mm, a little more modern yeah a little more modern a little more yeah uh, foreshadowing stuff to come after watching sancho sugata part two which is barely held together a postmodern masterpiece it's nice to see something as a concise whole <laughs> yeah in the very beginning of this film there's this huge dramatic musical note as they wind through the forest and i was like oh this movie is expressionist what's going on here and then it ends up not really being like that oh yeah it's it's real expressionist when the porter is on screen it's like looking at nosferatu <laughs> yeah uh, it was even though it's not a good movie and it's kind of incoherent there was just a lot of little stuff like that where i was like oh this is kind of cool like i'm excited to see more from the story director when he gets to actually make a, a film i was very interested in a lot of things that i saw in this movie that we're going to definitely see later yeah which you would know beyond techniques i was noticing very specific stuff like the forest feels very much like rashomon that's famously i've only seen rashomon so i noticed that <laughs> but yeah the group of six samurai and their mm -hmm. master making it a group of seven, seven samurai. samurai yeah that was, i also caught that yeah fortunately when we get to that one it's going to be a much better you know explored for each character well he has uh, three times the amount of time. Yeah, well, yeah, when, when you have more time, I would certainly hope that you yeah. do more with it. You mentioned that the supporter feels like a weird character for him, but actually, way later in his filmography, when we get to Ron, there's a very similar character who advises the main character in that movie as kind of his jester, Ooh. and he's played by another famous Japanese comedian. But I was like, oh, wow, like, so this is kind of that idea. I mean, I know Ron is based on King Lear and everything, and there's a character in that that it's actually... The Fool. Yeah, I, I, I feel that instinct kind of coming in at this movie. And so, for nothing else, I enjoyed watching this movie just to see more direct promises for what's to come, rather than seeing an expansion on technique. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the other movies didn't really feel like foreshadowing his career, where this movie, I thought a lot more was like that, with just many more elements that you could see coming back. The other ones feel like him learning how to use his camera techniques, and this one feels more of how he's going to use his story techniques. I believe that. I mean, I'm excited to see other films to to see connections to this later on. Yeah, exactly. It'll be fun, and we will take all four of our listeners with us. We'll take you on a journey. <laughs> you specifically, you alone. Yes, you alone. We know you're listening. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it. Hi, Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let's discuss our favorite shots in The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. Yeah, what was yours? So mine is this shot of Benkei and Togashi bowing and opposing each other in a shot that looks a lot like it's going to spark a duel, especially with their swords kind of contrasting in lines with the white background piece in front of them. There's also, could you tell if those mountains were drawn on 
or if they were actually real. They were definitely on like a fake set. That was actually another thing I noticed watching the film. It's like they kept switching back and forth between like in a real forest are kind of pretty cheap and shitty set to show <laughs> the film on. And this is definitely one of the set pieces. Hey, it was po- it was the end of the war. You make yeah, it with what you him. have. But I was looking at that and I was like, I think that those mountains are sketches. Yeah, no, those are <laughs> fake mountains. They're in a studio in, in the shot. But yeah, but I, I enjoyed the composition of this because it's really well balanced. And also this kind of profile standoff samurai shot is one that we're going to see Kurosawa do a lot later. This is the first time that that's ever stood out to me. And I just really like also the color contrast of everybody against that banner. So I thought that that one was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's a really nice shot. And I also, I like that scene in the film where it really does feel like a conflict's going to break out. Like the music ratchets. <laughs> that, scene, that scene is the whole movie. He starts like, no, I mean like this like five minutes surrounding the shot. He starts yelling and he starts chanting the curse and he gets really into Magistrate's <laughs> Tagashi's face. And they're both like, okay. And then they calm down and back away. Like, yeah, I was like, oh, it's time. And then, nah. <laughs> So my favorite shot is, I believe, slightly before that. They're going in, they're trying to explain themselves, and the queer-coded villain's getting really mad. And then Tagashi is like, no, this is fine, they're free to go. But wait, if you're really collecting donations for this uh, church, then you must have the advertisement for these donations. <laughs> Everyone gets super tense, they like start freaking out. And then Benke says to the comedian, please bring over this box. He quickly pulls out a scroll, and the comedian the entire time is just freaking out. The porter's losing his mind. Facial expression giving everything away. He just opens an empty scroll. Yeah, I'm like, how are they not arresting these people with this guy's reaction? Yeah, I would arrest the porter just on his own, <laughs> on his own merits. Yeah, it's just, yeah, this guy's annoying. <laughs> yeah. Get him out of here. Throw, throw him in jail for being annoying. Later in the film, when they scream to arrest the porter and they mean Yushitune, I thought they meant the annoying porter because he was being annoying. <laughs> yeah, I was with them. I was like, yes, get rid of him. They don't need him. Yeah, arrest this idiot. There's a shot from behind Benke where you can see the just blank scroll that he's holding out, making up the advertisement as it goes. As you see in the background, Magistrate Tagashi like falling asleep, not really caring. And then the, uh, <laughs> I really wish I had a better name for him, but his right hand man looking uh, I don't suspicious. know his name. I, I don't think we ever get a name for him in the film. It's an extremely evil looking man with a parted mustache and eyebrows that go up in a straight line. But yeah, so I just, I really liked that scene. I like kind of visually how the story was told where often in this film you know something that not all the characters do i guess is another thing that felt very shakespearean to me but also just the way it's visually told where he just literally he opens a blank scroll and you're like oh my god he's about to do it and then he does <laughs> and he gets away with it and i that was really exciting i was like that's that was well done oh shit blank scroll what he gonna read yeah i think he essentially says what would have been considered at the time is just generic platitudes almost like a lawyer just speaking legalese or like an advertiser just selling a product he's really just camming up generic religious platitudes <laughs> to sell this church and i was like that's fantastic that's really funny i, I really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it's like a parody of what us priests would say yeah he, he really hams up and it was it was a good scene these men treaded on the tiger's tail for a very short time let's not tread too long with our final thoughts i didn't really enjoy this one this is probably gonna rank pretty low in my kurosawa tier list personally just because i think because the porter didn't work for me anyway this is probably a five or six out of ten i mean like i said i like this way more than i should because i don't care that it was a bad movie i just liked most of the stuff in it so i, I personally this is like a seven and a half i recommend it for someone who plans to watch most of kurosawa's films as a Kurosawa head, it'll be exciting to you. And also, it's just kind of funny and interesting. There's so little of it, but what little there is, I think, is well-structured or well-made. <laughs> there is very little of it. Cool. And so our next order of business is going to be a little unusual. We're going to be talking about Kurosawa's lost film. Oh, yeah. Those Who Make Tomorrow. And so we're not going to waste your time or much of ours. It'll be a quick little thing. We'll drop it some point during the week, and then next week we'll actually release our review of No Regrets for Our Youth. Yes, yeah, his next film. And um, yeah, I think that that sums it up. See ya. <laughs>